Welcome to the Tobolowski Files, a series of stories about life, love, and the entertainment industry as told by actor Stephen Tobolowski. I'm David Chen from SlashFilm.com, and joining me today, he is the man who played Alex in the NBC original series, The Days and Nights of Molly Dodd, Stephen Tobolowski. Stephen, how are you doing today? I'm doing, I'm doing good, man. That goes back in the into the deep vaults. That was um, that is that is one of your first roles ever. That was Blair, uh, it, Blair Brown, I believe. Uh, yeah, I think that's right. This is from uh, 1987. Was when the days and nights of Molly Dodd and I played uh, Alex. They, yes, you played Alex. Okay, on that so show. so this David is the first job I ever did where I really stunk up the joint. So uh-huh. well, maybe not the first, but certainly the first where it 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 came back to haunt me. Uh, every Jay Tarsus, I believe, was in charge of that show. That's right. Yeah, and uh, they were really impressed with how funny I was with my audition. I, and Alex was a, a trumpet player, and I, I went in, and they were talking about how many episodes, and I was going to be a recurring and semi regular, whatever. And I was one and done. They they found my performance so shockingly unfunny. Uh, I thought it was hilarious because I was playing the guy like like a real super stoner, like low energy, kind of like like really zero IQ, like I don't know what. But apparently, it didn't play, and uh, I did. I didn't hear anything from them again. My agent called me up and said, what did you do? So, David, that is one of the, one of the uh, ones that I survived. That's the one that could have been the end of uh, the Tobo's career. Wow, yeah. Uh, well, it aired on NBC from 1987 to 1988, and then on Lifetime from 1988 to 1991. Uh, but I really, to hear you. Yeah, I appreciate you bringing that up. Oh, no, no problem, Stephen. You know, I always like to bring up things from your past that uh, might have been formative, right? Like a lot of the stuff we talk about here on the podcast is past experiences that may or may not have shaped who you are. Uh, and I guess, you know, when we think about what are the events, you know, what are the life decisions, what are the crucial turning points that shape who you are, what comes to mind for you, Stephen? Well... The first thing that comes to mind with me was about 28 years ago, and I was sitting next to Anne, my wife in the delivery room, watching with horror as she screamed, turned purple, and gave birth to our first son, Robert. That was formative. Well, actually, it wasn't so much of a birth, David, as an eviction. The doctor said push. Anne obeyed and shot Robert out of her like a football. It was remarkable in an animal planet sort of way. But I remember saying to myself, oh, I get it. We are in a movie, but the movie is science fiction. 
Over the last few months, I've been trying to unravel the question of when did I become me, which led to a second question, what was I before I became me, and the particularly nasty final question, am I still in the process of changing? Well, I soon become something I no longer recognize as me. And in my final days on earth, will I be forced to live as a stranger to myself? Or maybe that's part of the plan. It's always easier to say goodbye to a stranger than a friend. Science Fiction Being human is the contradiction that inevitably comes from a creature of habit that constantly seeks change. All of us are given a few notes at birth. From this we make our theme. I think mine sounded a little like the opening of the Andy Griffith show. But what makes us isn't the simplicity or the beauty of our tune. But how we respond to change, these become our variations. Theme and variation appear throughout all of nature. Science calls this process evolution. The clownfish takes up residence in a poisonous anemone. The scarlet kingsnake literally changes its skin to look like a poisonous coral snake. All variations inspired by survival. In humanity, theme and variation has become at least to my untrained eye, far more complicated. Our variation is not limited to survival, but has exploded into fashion, exercise equipment, morality, government, snack foods, and cable television. The success of a human variation is often tied to what is considered acceptable behavior, from taking a vow of silence in a monastery to operating death camps like Auschwitz. I was recording the audiobook for my adventures with God. On a break, my engineer, Mark Kellen, was talking about one of our mutual loves, music. Besides providing seemingly endless pleasure, music is a remarkable laboratory for theme and variation. Mark said that all great musicians seem to follow the same arc of creativity. At first, they embraced the styles of those that came before them. As he or she grows in artistry, their work bears a stamp that is singularly theirs, a stamp that in turn inspires other new artists coming behind them. You can clearly hear this arc in the work of Beethoven. Earlier in his life, his variations often reflected classical influences that sounded very much like Mozart. This evolved through the years. Classical lines were replaced by explorations into time and space. The second movement of his final piano sonata, 111, is a stunning snapshot of this evolution. Beethoven begins with a classical contemplation, and then he twists time and space, presenting a variation that foreshadows a Chopin impromptu. That transforms into versions that to modern ears sound like New Orleans jazz. Then 32nd notes turn into 64th notes, and we hear the theme turn into a ridiculously joyful variation that resembles a boogie-woogie. Beethoven then uses variations that describe the earth and then the stars, and our place as a spiritual being caught between the two. Then the piece takes an unexpected turn. Variations stop. Pianist Andra Schiff describes the conclusion of Sonata 111 this way. We end up in a place of thankfulness and gratitude. Gratitude for our lives. Gratitude for being able to create music this beautiful. 
When he finished writing the piece, it said that Beethoven remarked to his friend, That is all I can do. It was Beethoven's last piano sonata. Musicologists have said that Sonata 111 represents much more. It was the transcendent end of the form. The idea of the sonata was forever changed. The piece went on to inspire Chopin and Prokofiev in their work. It even became a literary touchstone for Thomas Mann in Dr. Faustus. Beethoven's genius provided not only exquisite beauty, but perhaps an answer to my question about what is the thing I call me. Perhaps we spend our early life finding a theme, and our future blessings and catastrophes force us into writing the variations. Jim McClure and I were roommates our freshman year. It was the only time we ever lived together, and yet for the rest of our lives, Jim called me Rumi. It was our theme. I went into the summer after my freshman year like the birth of my son, shot out of a cannon, blind to my future, composed of equal parts of energy and frustration. I was all engine and no road. I look back at that summer, and I wondered if anything happened that became part of my theme. I recorded two songs on a new high with our high school band, a cast of thousands. I did not become a musician. It was noteworthy because our guitarist did. A 14-year-old from our neighborhood, Stevie Ray Vaughan, played lead guitar on her record. I was initially upset about sharing our recording with a little kid. Perhaps that was part of my theme. One of the most consistent tasks I've had throughout my life is taking my foot out of my mouth. Watching Stevie play the guitar that day was burned into my heart and soul, and not because Stevie became famous. But more significantly, it was the first time I witnessed genius. I saw what the real thing looked like. I was less likely to be fooled in the future by cheap imitations. Theme. I did a play that summer at Theater 3. It was a musical called Young A. Blinken. It was an entertaining show. I sang, I danced, I played a bad guy, but more significantly, they paid me. Fifty dollars. I was a professional actor for the first time in my life. Theme. But the biggest event during that summer between my freshman and sophomore years was I went on a six-week road trip to Germany. Yeah. It was a student exchange program sponsored by the Dallas Lions Club. Various kids from our area were shipped off to live with German Lions Club families, We spent two weeks with our respective families. Then all of us kids were put on a bus for a two-week road trip within our road trip, visiting points of interest, and then we rejoined our German families for the final two weeks. Sidebar. Even though I had never been to Europe, I didn't find the plan intimidating. The road trip was a staple of my youth. It seemed like every summer Dad would load up the car and we would drive. Three kids in the back, Mom up front holding the map, Dad driving. Dad always operated somewhere between suicidal and homicidal rage behind the wheel. On various trips, we went to Chicago, New York, Miami, Los Angeles, and several treks to Pennsylvania to see Mom's family. There were several constants to our road trips. There were always tears. There were always attempts by Dad to swat at us in the back seat while driving 60 miles an hour down a country road in the rain. We were always out of our motel room and driving by dawn, and we almost always died several times. 
I remember asking Dad why we couldn't fly. Dad said it was too expensive. I didn't get it. Flying to Pennsylvania took four hours. Driving to Pennsylvania took four days. That's a lot of gas. That's three days of motel rooms and meals. As a historical note, I'm sure the basis for Dad's thinking was that gas only cost around 30 cents a gallon back then and was as cheap as 19 cents a gallon crossing the desert. What interested me the most about Dad's answer was that it assumes time is free. It never is. In fact, the road trip emphasizes that time has the same value no matter how you spend it. We only had three weeks, so one hour spent for a bathroom break and a cheese sandwich at a filling station somewhere in the Smoky Mountains was time-wise just as significant as seeing the Washington Monument. Getting lost in the woods of Louisiana was worth the same thing as seeing the Rockettes at Radio City. Dad may have accidentally stumbled across something quite zen in insisting on the road trip. I learned to see the finer points in long stretches of nothing. That has certainly been a part of my theme in being an actor. And if one follows the metaphor all the way home, the Tobolowsky Files has become an unexpected variation. On the trip to Germany, I was lucky. Well, well, all of us Texas kids were lucky. To be a member of the Lions Club in Germany, you had to be in the top 5% income bracket. In America, to be a member, you had to see the humor of putting a wet napkin on someone else's seat before they sat down. So all of us Texas kids stayed with millionaires. I got Herr Diekmann. He built parks and bridges for a living. He had two kids, Michael and Christian. The boys spoke English and were close to my age, so I had built-in friends. Friends that chain-smoked non-filter European cigarettes. Herr Diekmann had two homes, one in Bavaria and one in northern Germany. He had indoor and outdoor swimming pools and his own bowling alley in the basement. He had a chauffeur named Herr Botterman, who never spoke, and a young maid named Brigitta, who did. Herr Diekmann told us that part of the house rules were not to be impolite to Herr Botterman and to keep our hands off of Brigitta. Herr Diekmann collected antique books. I loved looking at them, even though they were all in German. He had friends that were richer than he was. One collected antique diamonds. He lived in a castle on top of the mountain outside of the town of Hamlin of Pied Piper fame. This guy was so rich, he must have made Herr Diekmann feel like he sold t-shirts on the sidewalk. This guy had an Olympic-sized swimming pool indoors. He had his own lake. He had clothing stores and beauty parlors on the ground level of the castle. In case they sprung a formal dinner on you, you could run downstairs and be fitted for white tie and tails. Their 16-year-old son was a Marxist. Yeah, it figures. I guess he didn't realize that when the revolution came, he would be the first to go. In an expression of independence, he chose to live in his own wing of the castle, where he could read Trotsky at his leisure. The castle had so many bedrooms, his parents didn't know that their son's girlfriend had also moved in as well. After our morning coffee and lunchtime coffee, we were sitting in the diamond display room having our afternoon coffee when nature called. I asked my host where a bathroom was. He said, There is a bathroom you can use, he thought for a moment to get his bearings. Go out of this room, through the music room. You will end up in the gray hall. Walk past the table and the fireplace and out the far door. You will be in a large octagonal room. 
using the door in front of you as 12 o'clock, go through the door at 2 o'clock. You will now be in a hallway with several rooms. The first door on your right that doesn't have a number on it is the men's room. I thanked him and left on my voyage of discovery. I didn't know how long the trip would take, so I walked quickly to avoid an embarrassing trip to the clothing store downstairs to buy a new pair of jeans. I arrived at the men's room about seven minutes later. I went inside. There was nothing but showers. Rows of showers, like for an entire soccer team. Then I noticed another door at the far end of the shower room. It led to a room with nothing but sinks. I started to panic. I went back to the shower room to see if I missed the hall of toilets somewhere along the way. My bladder told me time was up, so I ran back to the second room and peed in the sink. I hiked back and confessed to their son. He stared at me. You peed in our sink? Why did you do this? I, I couldn't find a toilet. I saw showers and sinks. The toilets and bidets are in the next room. Next room? Yeah, there is another room after the room with the sinks. Right, right. Well, I wasn't aware of that. He smiled and shook his head. Sorry, I said. The boy took a drag off of his cigarette and made the sign of the cross. It's all right. You are an American. You are forgiven for everything. I wasn't proud of being the ugly American, but it serves them right. Extravagant wealth carries enormous price tags. It is an unwritten rule of the universe. If you can't go from your bedroom to the kitchen without a golf cart, someone will eventually pee in your sink. After a couple of weeks of enjoying sausages and pastries, the road trip within the road trip began. All of us young Texans gathered on board a bus with an unfortunate German chaperone. To make his job more difficult, we began singing folk songs. 500 Miles, Tom Dooley, and Kumbaya. I should mention that Kumbaya was a relatively new bus song at the time and still packed an emotional wallop, especially when we got to the part when someone is crying, Kumbaya. I recall the high points of the first part of our trip. We went to a street market and ate three kinds of eel. We visited Hamburg and saw prostitutes displayed in store windows. We went to Dusseldorf because it had a familiar name. We arrived in Cologne just as the Beatles' Let It Be album was released. I was tempted to buy one, but I was freaked out about how flexible album covers were in Europe and decided against it. On my way back to the hotel, I was approached by an older English gentleman. He smiled and asked me if I wanted to have a beer with him in his hotel room. He assured me it was right around the corner. I declined politely. He leaned in and whispered, You don't know who I am, do you? I shook my head. Uh, no, sir. I'm George Martin. I produce the Beatles. He grinned, showing an uneven wall of yellow teeth. I could only see two logical possibilities. Both were upsetting. One that he was lying, and he was using someone else's fame to slip a teenager a roofie. Or two, he was telling the truth, and one of the most famous men in the world had to rely on his notoriety to slip a teenager a roofie. Either way, he represented the sad truth that you can't trust an Englishman on holiday. I ran back to my hotel without saying goodbye. The main event of the road trip within the road trip was visiting Berlin. 
This was not easy. Berlin was deep in the heart of communist East Germany. Communist dictatorships are rated on a different scale than most countries. Rather than sightseeing destinations, they're often ranked by the amount of murder it took to establish the state. It's often in the millions. To get to Berlin, we had to go through a military roadblock between East and West Germany. Our chaperone handed the proper documents to the soldiers and paid the fee for our passage. We got the okay to continue down the highway. The countryside on the way to Berlin looked just like the scenery I remembered from our car trips when I was a child, except for the barbed wire. The forests were punctuated with occasional guard towers mounted with searchlights. Our chaperone told us the woods were frequently patrolled by soldiers with dogs. After driving for over two hours, we arrived in West Berlin. We were going to stay three days. I don't remember much. The highly alcoholic German beer made most of my time a blur. I recall going to a disco and climbing into a cage above the dance floor and doing a combination of the jerk and the hitchhiker. The jerk worked well in the cage. The hitchhiker, not so much. There was not enough room for arm and thumb extensions. Germans laughed and pitched pennies at me, or rather finnigs. One night, I got into a fight with a German soldier in a bar. Yeah. We threw each other over tables. We threw chairs. People were screaming. The police were called. The soldier and I ran out of the club and fell down in the alley laughing. We became immediate drinking buddies and were the best of friends for the next two hours. I remember kissing a beautiful girl I didn't know in a park. She has remained one of my fondest memories of this trip. She was on our bus. She lived in a small town outside of Dallas. She spoke of how much she loved children, and no matter where life took her, she was looking forward to being a mother. She was too young to have been altered by ambition. She was a portrait of a pure passion for life, quite startling in its undiluted form. The day arrived for our journey into East Berlin. Our chaperone told us we should be on good behavior, do everything the soldiers tell us. We were going to get the rare view into the heart of communist East Germany. Our bus stopped at Checkpoint Charlie. We displayed our passports and entry papers. We were waved forward toward the East German side. We got to another blockade. East German soldiers with machine guns came into the bus. My busmate was Mark. Mark was 16, but he was big for his age. He was goofy, jovial, not a mean bone in his body. So I was surprised when the soldier walked past us. and Mark shouted, Get your gun out of my face, you fucking commie! Unfortunately, the soldier apparently spoke some English. He leveled his machine gun at Mark, then turned and leveled it at me and said, You two, off the bus. What? I said. Off, off, schnell, both of you, hands up. We complied. We were led off of the bus and marched 20 yards away and commanded to stand against a red brick wall near their guardhouse. The soldier went into the guardhouse and talked to his commanding officer. I watched the soldier through the window as he spoke and gestured to his superior. He pointed at Mark and me through the window. The officer listened, nodded, looked at us standing against the wall. He put on his hat and came outside. The officer reminded me of Robert Shaw in From Russia with Love. He walked back and forth in front of us, checking us out, thinking. Some internal calculation was made, and he spoke, 
You two turn around. Hands on the wall. We did. A soldier frisked us. The officer pointed at the bus. Take their luggage off the bus. A chaperone came off of the bus and started speaking frantically in German to the officer. The officer calmly walked over to him and began a quiet but intense conversation. Two soldiers pulled our luggage off of the bus and put the bags on the ground in front of us. Our chaperone became very upset and appeared to be pleading with the officer. The officer calmly held up his hand and began walking back towards us. The chaperone got on the bus, the doors closed, and the bus drove away. The officer ordered two soldiers to open our suitcases. The guards started coming through our baggage, pulling clothes out, tossing them on the ground, my dirty underwear, my good suit. One of the soldiers shrugged as if he was saying, nothing. The officer nodded and walked up to us and said, now we will see if you have any friends. You've been charged with violation of protocol in crossing the border. I've levied a 500 mark penalty for each of you. Your chaperone has gone to the American embassy. If your government won't pay, I guess you could take up a collection. You stay here until your fine is paid. Thunder rolled. The officer looked up at the darkening skies and smiled. Hope they get back soon. The officer and his soldiers went back in the guardhouse as it started to rain and continued to rain. All of our clothes, all of our mementos were soaked. Mark and I stood, hands on the wall, drenched. The soldiers kept looking out at us through the window of the guardhouse and laughing. The officer came up to the window and tapped on the glass. I looked at him. He gave me a little wave, then pulled out a flask and took a swig. Then he made a sad face at me and pretended to shiver. Then he laughed and joined his comrades. Two hours later, our bus returned with our fine. Our chaperone ended up paying it himself on the promise he would be reimbursed. I never found out if he was. Mark and I repacked all of our things. Our bags now weighed 500 pounds soaked with rain and mud. We dragged them back to the bus. I don't consider my trip to East Berlin to have been a waste of time. No museums or art galleries could have given me a more profound understanding of that place than the two hours I spent standing against the wall. When I was a younger, I had me a cowboy. He wasn't much to look at, just a free rambling man. Now that was a long time No matter how I try These dreams go by like I'm broken down My summer in Germany was the very definition of a road trip A series of odd events strung together by a common theme A theme I haven't visited since I can't visit The entire nation of East Germany doesn't exist anymore My six-week adventures become like a dream. You try to remember after you wake up, and as you talk about it, it makes less and less sense than it did when you were dreaming it. A fight in a bar with a German soldier? Passionately kissing a beautiful girl I didn't know in a public park? I don't recognize any of these behaviors as being me. The only part of the trip that had the slight ring of familiarity to it was almost getting ass-pounded by George Martin. As dramatic as it all was, 
My time in Germany has proved to be quite forgettable. Until last year. I was watching Steven Spielberg's Bridge of Spies. And near the end of that film, there's a series of concurrent scenes that take place in the no-man's land between East and West Berlin. All at once, my stomach nodded. I went cold. I froze the image on the screen. I jumped out of bed to get a closer look. I called out, Anne! Anne, look! Right there! What? she asked. That is the brick wall where I stood. And there's the guardhouse. I reminded her of the story. Our bus was stopped here. Our suitcases were pulled out in the rain right about there. Now, it's true that my 1970 Checkpoint Charlie was a little different than the Checkpoint Charlie in the movie, but enough of it was there that it was there. Steven Spielberg has made many entertaining films. But for me, in Bridge of Spies, his scrupulous dedication to visual truth shows the power of art. What is gone can return. In fact, it often tells us that it has never left. It's easy to see how the past directs the future. Cause and effect. It's the engine that drives science. But we're often too busy to notice when the future gives shape to the past. This phenomenon is known by many names. Whether you call it destiny or regret, it is often the engine of art. When I got back to Texas from Germany, I almost immediately started school. First day of my sophomore year was another half day dedicated to student orientation. Professor Heaton, wearing his blue jeans, was leading around another herd of incoming freshmen. I was reading various notices on the green room call board when I heard the whistle coming down the hall. The the sounds of sweet George Brown meant one thing. Jim McClure was in the building. Sidebar. Jim's whistle was the soundtrack of his life. It always entered a room before he did. Jim was very good. You know, he could have gone pro as soon as that one professional whistler died and left a vacancy. But Jim could whistle anything. He seemed to prefer Stephen Foster songs, roll gospel hymns, Irish and Scottish folk tunes. He often told me that he never had the talent to play the guitar or piano. He thought whistling was his God-given instrument, and I'd have to agree. His whistle always brought joy to anyone who heard it. Jim came up behind me. Hey, Rumi! Hey, you, Jim! We hugged. Oh, how was the summer? He asked. Well, I was almost machine-gunned to death in Berlin. How did I know you were going to say that? So you get laid? Wait, let me guess. You finally realized you're a fag. Not quite. I went to Germany with the Lions Club, and they tried to gun you down. What, were you trying to introduce them to Peter, Paul, and Mary? No. So where are you living this year? I got a one-bedroom off campus, hopefully far away from the mighty Pollock. Had to get rid of all my clothes from last year. Couldn't get rid of the stench. Speaking of stench, where are you staying this year? I, um... I joined a fraternity. Jim pretended like he was having a red fox heart attack. Oh, my God! Do these people have any standards? Wait, scratch that question. Of course they don't. Why did you join a fraternity? Because they were nice guys, Jim. And none of them were in the theater department. And the room was cheap. Aha! So now we get down to it. And I thought it might help me socialize. 
Jim laughed and then put on a faux serious expression as he put his arm around my shoulder and walked me away from the green room call board. He spoke to me confidentially, Oh, mighty Pollock, I don't know how to break it to you. You're in the theater. There is no social life. You traded it away for the right to get in front of an audience. When you are the show, you have the play. The people who come to the show, they have a social life. See you on the boards, Rumi. Jim slapped me on the shoulder and went whistling on his way. I was happy to see Jim. I'm sure part of that was that we weren't going to be roommates anymore. It wasn't just that now I could listen to Peter, Paul, and Mary all day long without fear of mockery, or that if Jim got into a fight with his girlfriend in Shreveport, I wouldn't have to explain to Howard, our floor monitor, how the phone got pulled out of the wall. Jim was like a great painting on a large canvas, best observed from a distance. Jim and I were never connected by a typical friendship. Freshman year, we were bound by a passion to act, an appreciation of Tony Bennett, and the luck of the draw of living together in a small storage locker they called a dorm room. This year, we were bound by something new. We were survivors. We made it through one year in the drama department, and that wasn't a given. We lost a few our freshman year to stress, to illness, and to reality. Chuck, one of our brethren on the fourth floor of Morrison Hall, tried to kill himself. Now he sold shirts at Neiman Marcus. Jim and I were no longer the low men on the theater department totem pole. Last year, we didn't get many shots in the big productions. That didn't stop us. We said yes to every opportunity to perform. Jim and I took part in over a dozen student projects, We performed in classrooms, in the student center, in toy stores, and public parks. I don't suspect our reputations were enhanced by the quality of our work, but more by our relentlessness to put ourselves out there. We demonstrated to the powers that be we were willing to make our own breaks. Effort carries its own good name. I had every reason to believe that this year would be my year, and I suddenly became nauseous. Sidebar. The past and future are not just concepts of time. They exist somewhere between idea and substance. The past has shape in the form of memory and weight, usually in the form of regret. The good thing about the weight of regret is that it's fairly constant. One can adjust. On any given day, if a person decides they're feeling strong, they could choose to carry a little bit more. Please pass me another piece of that pie. The future is different. It has no fixed form. It's the weight that kills you. I call this the weight of potential. The weight of potential is not constant. It's heavy or light depending on your imagination. When potential appears in the distance, it's like jet fuel. It's light as a feather. It inspires. It energizes. During these periods, I've washed my car. I've even gone to the gym. At close range, potential can paralyze. It's what makes every opening night terrifying and every audition a good reason for getting out of the business. I noticed my nausea was increasing in direct proportion to the approach of Professor Heaton and the new students. I couldn't articulate it then. 
but I see now that their buzzing and excited chatter was the sound of my potential at the door. They were freshmen. They weren't going to do anything but shave their legs and move sets this year. This was the time of my opportunity, and if I couldn't seize it, it was potentially the year of my utter failure. I found the weight overwhelming. I escaped up a spiral staircase into the silence of the empty Margot Jones Theater. I hiked up into the last row of seats and sat quietly, praying to whatever gods there may be to give me a chance to prove myself on this stage. My prayer was interrupted by the sound of the stage door open, close, and then footsteps. I assumed it was security to take me back downstairs, but it wasn't. It was another escapee. A girl I had never seen before walked onto the stage. She stood in a pool of light cast by a large single bulb on a stand, stage center. She never saw me in the darkness. She took a few steps, casting a giant shadow across the room. All at once she struck a pose of someone trying to regain her balance and pretended to walk on an imaginary tightrope. I watched with fascination as she reached the imaginary safety of the far side of the stage. Then she bowed to no one and ran out of the theater. In an instant, the weight of the future changed again. Later that afternoon, I asked around and found out her name was Beth. The next day, I attended my first conference hour of my sophomore year, and I applauded wildly for our new acting teacher, Joan Potter. I never saw the threat. I was unaware that in a 24-hour period, two women had entered my life who would change who I was, or rather, would change who I would become. At this point in time, both love and catastrophe were beyond my imagination. I could only play the notes I knew and hope for the best. In a few days, it became clear that my affection for Beth was growing at an exponential rate. I tried to sit with her at dinner. I told her jokes. I even bought a few yards of dark blue plaid fabric from a store in Snyder Plaza. I got help from Guyva McBride in the costume shop. She showed me how to work a sewing machine. And I made a cape. I presented it to Beth at dinner. She seemed to be thrilled. She tried it on and called it her raven cape. And I still didn't have the nerve to ask her out. As romance was budding, disaster was building on other fronts. It was clear that Joan Potter had marked me for extinction. It began right after I chose to do a striptease in front of the faculty and incoming freshmen at the beginning of the year. Ooh, perhaps it was influenced by my disco dancing in the go-go cage at the German nightclub. Huh. At any rate, this created the impression in the minds of some that I was not serious about the craft of acting. It wasn't long before more atrocities began appearing around the edges of my vision. Angus Bomer, the founder of the Ashland Shakespeare Festival in Oregon, was invited to the school to speak at conference hour. Footnote. The Oregon Shakespeare Festival was huge in our consciousness at this time. First, they did Shakespeare which defined you as a serious actor. Supposedly, they did it well, which meant the festival's reputation would be imparted to you by association. But of primary importance, they hired people our age. Getting a summer job at Ashland meant more than money, status, and experience. 
It was one of those few jobs that promised more in the future. It was jet fuel. After the conference hour, I saw Jim whispering with some of the upperclassmen. It seemed information was being exchanged. I ran over and interrupted the conversation. What's going on? I asked. Nothing, said Jim. Greg was more forthright. Angus Bomer was going to talk to some of us about working at Ashland this summer? Some of us, I asked. Yeah, we were asked to meet with him, Jim said. By whom? A potter and Jack Clay, said Greg. What about me, I asked. Jim interrupted, if a teacher didn't ask you to meet with him, you're not supposed to come. You're probably not right for any of the parts. They don't want to waste his time. Waste his time? If he talks to 12 of you, he could talk to 13. It's the same amount of time. Well, they can't have everyone at the meeting. They only have a few positions. Well, I'm not everyone. I'm me. I'm going. You can't. You have to be invited, Jim protested. I ignored the warnings and hung out in the green room until Angus Bummer was led back up the spiral staircase to the Margot Jones. I followed the chosen ones. There were only about 15 students. We sat in the first two rows and listened to Mr. Bomer's pitch about how working at Ashland would be a great experience for any young actor. Yes, if we needed the pitch. Joan Potter scanned the audience and spotted me. She stopped his presentation politely. I'm sorry, Mr. Bomer. We're going to have to stop there. Some of the students here aren't from the group we selected for you to meet. She turned to us and said, Thank you. You can go. If you were in the original group we invited to the presentation, we'll be contacting you individually. Jim looked at me and rolled his eyes. Later that evening, Jim and I were having a beer in his Mustang in the CPL. It was one of the last times we ever went to the CPL. We were almost old enough to drink indoors. Way to go. You screwed it up for everybody, Jim said. No, I didn't. You did. You think pulling stuff like that is going to endear you to people in the department? They'll hate even more than they do now. No, they won't. Of course they will. Now they just make appointments for us individually, and every time they do, they'll think of you and what an asshole you are. Jim, what do you think I'm doing here? Jim looked at me blankly. Why do you think I'm sitting in your stupid car drinking beer in this stupid parking lot? I'm here because... I am here. I came to SMU to be an actor, not to have some people who aren't actors telling me I'm not. Joan Potter is not an actor. Jack Clay is not an actor. Neither is Hopgood. If they were, they would be, but they're not. I didn't come here to sit in the green room. I didn't lie to my parents and tell them I was majoring in pre-law to sit in the green room. These people don't have the right to limit my opportunities. That's not their job. Their job is to teach and stay out of my way. Jim started laughing. Oh, my God, <laughs> the mighty Pollock has arisen. I think that's the first time you ever sounded like an actor. Oh, give me a break. No, 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 I'm serious. I mean, you always sound like a nice guy, a good student, but now you're starting to sound like a real asshole. That's good. Yeah, well, I still have a long way to go to sound like as big of an asshole as you. Jim graciously nodded to me. Anything I could do to help, Rumi, I'm here to lead the way.
I never heard anything more about Ashland or Angus Bomer. I wasn't cast in any of the main stage shows my junior year at SMU. And if you need the details of the awfulness of it all, I refer you to episode 13 of the Tobolowsky Files Conference Hour. It's too grisly to repeat here. But my difficulties in the department were removed with a single blast of success. Beth and I kissed. Yes, this meant I would probably be able to have more opportunities to talk to her, and then maybe we could get married. Sidebar. I've never been sure if the theme and variations of any life are the products of the notes we were born with or the notes we pick up along the way and choose to string together. An argument could be made either way. I've always hedged my bets by trying to go to bed before midnight. That takes a lot of bad things out of the mix. It was the start of a new day. I was in my standard morning spot, scanning the green room call board for news of auditions, speakers, new studio productions, when Ron Troutman came round the corner. Ron was one of the top graduate directors in the department. Ron had a naturally joyous disposition. He was always making jokes. He had a smile for everyone, never seemed to take anything too seriously. Ron was also the only person I knew who had been a victim of polio or some similar crippling disease in childhood. I don't remember him ever using crutches, but walking was a chore. Ron's withered legs barely held him up. He had found a way to walk to classes and even climb stairs with his fragile gait, occasionally reaching out for a wall or a door frame to steady himself. Ron shuffled over to me and exploded, Stephen, I got great news. I got a job. Hooray. (laughs) I'm directing in the Catskills this summer. I can't believe it. We're doing Oscar Wilde, Shakespeare, Tennessee Williams, Edward Albee. I'm in heaven. As an actor, I had not yet developed the skills to appear to appreciate other people's good news. That's great, Ron, I said with a bit of forced enthusiasm. Our conversation was interrupted by the sounds of sweet Georgia Brown, the whistle, the footsteps, then the man himself. Jim joined Ron and me. Hey, what's going on? I interrupting? Looks like party time. Ron just got a job, I said. Jim scrunched up his face. What job? Summerstock, Ron beamed. I'm directing in Forestburg, New York. Well, that's pretty nasty to throw in our faces, Ronnie boy, said Jim. Huh? said Ron. We're your friends, said Jim. Well, I know, said Ron. That's why I wanted to tell you. Yeah, so congratulations, Ingmar Bergman. We're also actors. You ever think of that? Well, of course I thought of that, Ron began. Jim cut him off. You got the power now, Troutman. Why didn't you offer us a job? Ron was dumbfounded. Well, they're doing all the casting in New York. Screw New York, said Jim. Exactly, I said. Screw them. You know us, Ron. You worked with us. We're not going to let you down. We're dependable. I, I know that, guys. It's just it's just nothing, I said. Look, we supported you, Ron. If you were a real friend, you should support us now. Just expecting us to give you a pat on the back? I mean, that's kind of mean. Well, I'll ask, said Ron. Not good enough, said Jim. Jim's right. Not good enough. I laughed and I grabbed Ron's wrist. 
Come on, Ron. We'll work for nothing. We just want a chance. Jim started laughing and grabbed Ron's other arm and pulled it in the opposite direction. Ron, you know we're right. We're cheap, man. Just get us a job. Ron lost his footing and shouted out in alarm. Let me go. I'm going to fall. Jim and I laughed and held on to each of Ron's arms and pulled him in different directions across the green room floor. I can't stand up. Stop it. Stop it. I'm going to fall. We'll let you go as soon as you give us a job, Ron. Ron started crying. Stop. Please stop. Give us a job, Ron. Just give us a job and we'll be friends again. Come on. We'll let you go. I laughed. Okay, okay, I'll call Maisel. I'll call him and try to get you guys on for the summer. Just let me go, damn it. Jim and I stopped swinging Ron across the room. We held him up. We made sure he was steady. There you go, I said. You okay now? I'm going to let go, said Jim. I'm fine. I'm fine. Just let me go. Let me go, said Ron. We did. Ron got his balance and started to make his way out of the green room. He shouted back, I'll call him tonight. You two are assholes. Assholes. Ron shuffled down the hallway. Jim patted me on the back. Well done, almighty Pollock. And you know, I think Troutman's a big enough dope to actually get us a job. Ron did. The next day he made his way up to me and said, I called Al Maisel. He's the man who runs the theater. He said, I could have two people. If you and McClure want to come, he'll pay $10 a week plus room and board. Oh, I hugged Ron. Ron pushed me away. Don't. Don't. Do you want the job or not? It's not much money, but with you guys there, I bet the shows will be good and and we can have some fun. Yes, I said, I'll do it, Ron. I'll give you my $10. I, I just wanted a chance to act doing great plays with you directing, and we'll be in New York. Well, New York State, said Ron. Yeah, but we're closer to Broadway. Whatever. Do you want the job? Yes. Thank you. You're welcome, but you're still an asshole. I told Jim. He couldn't believe it. You're kidding. I thought it was more likely Troutman would have us arrested. So what do you think? What do I think, Rumi? It's a chance of a lifetime. We'll make it a road trip. We could take the Mustang, sleep under the stars, spend the summer doing theater. Oh, man, I'm in. I was going to be a New York actor. Well, a New York State actor. But there was a cost in getting the job. I had become my enemy. I was the bully. I don't think Jim and I physically hurt Ron, but we terrified him. We humiliated him. After everything I had learned in East Berlin, I still made Ron stand up against the wall until I got my ransom. And what frightened me so much was I'm not sure why I did it. My offense was not new. It was typical. So common that 2,000 years ago it was cited as the central tenet of Judaism— What is hateful to you, do not do unto your fellow man. That is the whole law. The rest is commentary. The weight of regret still whispers to me some nights after I finish a show. And I pray that Ron has forgiven me. There were benefits from my cruelty. Jim and I got the job. 
We were going on a road trip. But most importantly, my theme developed a new variation. As Hillel says in the Talmud, never trust yourself until the last day of your life. Make me an angel that flies from Montgomery. Make me a poster of an old rodeo. Just give me one thing that I can hold on to. To believe in this living is just a hard way to go. That was The Road Trip, a series of stories told by actor Stephen Tobolowsky, and you're listening to The Tobolowsky Files. Stephen, uh, your story reminds me of a similar story I've heard about, uh, I'm not going to say, I'm not going to name a name, I don't want to be sued for libel, but I I did know that there is a very famous actor who would, uh, when he was auditioning, after he left the room, uh, at the audition room, would then go out back to the line of people who are auditioning and tell them that he had gotten the role so that they would leave. Uh, which I thought was a clever, brazen, and shameless way to try and secure yourself apart. Yeah, well, uh, there, there are lots of forms of cruelty, David, and uh, sometimes they work, unfortunately, but they all take their toll. Indeed, indeed. Stephen, you are going to be performing live at a bunch of places to promote your new book, My Adventures with God. Um, so when you're not listening to new episodes of The Tobolowsky Files at ToblowskyFiles.com, where can people find you in real life? Uh, if you're going to be in Boston, I'm going to be performing at the Vilna Shul May 1st at 7 p.m., and that's over on Phillips Street. And I, David, I've got a lot of friends from our days in Boston that have already written me, said I'm going to be there and I'm looking forward to seeing them. So it's going to be uh, stories and uh, book signing. Then the next day, uh, I'm going to be in Washington, D.C. at 6th and I. I believe those are street (laughs) street locations, you know, in Washington, D.C. It's going to be at 7 p.m., and I'm going to do stories and a book signing. And I believe members of the Tobo family are going to be there, like my brother's kids, I think, are going to be joining me there. Then on Thursday, May 4th, I'm going to go down the coast to Atlanta, Georgia. I'm going to be at the Marcus JCC in Atlanta at 7.30, also going to be doing Q&A, stories, all sorts of fun things, and a book signing. And then I'm jetting back to Los Angeles on the May 5th, and I'm going to be in Vroman's Bookstore, which is a big deal out here in L.A., Pasadena, California, 7 to 9 o'clock. I'm going to be telling stories, doing a book signing. So if you're in Pasadena or just in this L.A. area, come on out to Vroman's and say hello. All right. Well, that's where you can find Stephen. Find more of his dates at stephentobolowski.com. Thanks for listening to this week's Tobolowski Files. We'll see you next week. Adios. I'm broken down there
Amen. Amen.